Welcome back, pool fans from across the country and around the world. You are listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is December the 17th, 2015. And tonight's show is brought to you in part by Tweet and Fiber Company, makers of Master Chalk and a whole host of accessories for your game made right here in the USA. It is also brought to you in part by Q Sports International, who has just announced that uh, we will be having in 2016 a brand new U.S. Open Straight Pool Tournament. We are excited about this announcement, so keep your eyes and your ears peeled for more information on that. So here it is, about a week after, almost a week after the Moscone Cup uh, finished up, we're all kind of settling back into our routine after spending <laughs> several days on the edge of our seats. So uh, we did decide to talk to, uh, we did some, uh, you know, speaking about it last week, but uh, I ran into one of the gentlemen uh, who has formerly been on the Moscone Cup team many times before, Mr. Jeremy Jones, to get his impression. He was there at the event to get his impression, uh, what he thought about how it went down and and what's some of the stuff that goes through your head as a player. So we'll be talking with Jeremy a little bit later. And uh, what else is going on? Well, you know, speaking of Jeremy, we just had uh, the Space City Open down in Houston, Texas. Uh, they finished up right about the same as the Moscone Cup. So uh, congratulations to those guys, and specifically to Jeremy. He actually snapped one off down there playing nine ball banks, too. So um, that's an up-and-coming event. It really is. I think this is their third or fourth year. Um, good little tournament that they got going on down there. So maybe they can do something about moving it out from under the Moscone Cup. I don't know. But uh, anyway, also, in case you didn't know already, the AccuStats Make It Happen matches started today. And man, I tell you what, that is a star-studded, action-packed, Wow. If you hadn't been watching this, you really should get in on it. Uh, Shane Van Boning, Daryl Appleton, Torsten Homan, Earl Strickland, Jason Shaw, and Kevin Chang. It's a, an outstanding lineup. They're playing 10 ball, race to 13. Uh, if you need more information, go to AccuStats.com and uh, get in on that because that's an exciting event as well. So... That's really about all the big-time action that's going on uh, other than your regional tours. And speaking of regional tours, out on the East Coast, the Predator Tour just had some uh, heavy-duty action too. Um, they had Stefan. Stefan Dempsey uh, just took the the title out there. He's the A-plus or number one A-plus top-ranked guy now. So uh, Allison Fisher pulled him aside and spoke with him for a couple minutes. Um, stick around to listen to that. And uh, bef But before we get to it, I wanted to share a little piece of history with you uh, for today. Um, there was an article that came out in the newspaper um, about 100 years ago. It literally, this was from December 1915. And the irony of the situation is that it's a hundred years to the day that this was published, and they seem to have been addressing the exact same problem, or one of the exact same problems that we're having today. 
The article was written by Mr. Maurice Daly. If you had not heard of Maurice Daly, he was a, um, a very popular room owner in New York, um, president of the New York Billiard Room Keepers Association. He was an author, a longtime player, and he knew just about everybody that was anybody in the billiard world for 50 years plus. This gentleman was well-respected. So the opinions that he's giving, <coughs> excuse me, are well-founded. This gentleman knows what he's talking about. So uh, I, I just want to share this with you so that you can see history, history repeats itself. The name of the article is Need Billiard Education. Young Players Must Be Developed by Scientific Instruction by Maurice Daly, President, New York Billiard Room Keepers Association. Maurice says, A campaign of education is necessary to develop billiards and to place it on a plane to which it belongs. In addition, activity is a necessary requirement to bring about better conditions in the pastime. Exhibition by the leading players, excuse me, exhibitions, by the leading players is the best form of education and the number of these exhibitions should be largely increased over those of the last few years. These, these exhibitions should be held in rooms not important enough to handle Class B players and this should be followed by the room keepers devoting their energies to helping the beginner which would mean the development of a new crop of an amateur players. This is possible this is possible by the establishment of lecture classes conducted along practical lines. Activity must result from these methods, and enthusiasm would follow as a natural sequence. Also, the roomkeepers themselves would be awakened to many possibilities of the game of which they little dreamed, and who knows, but a willy hoppy might be developed. Likewise, many of the young professor professors in the different clubs should be induced to join these lecture classes. To the ordinary observer, billiard appears quite simple, but when one takes it seriously, he will find it the most scientific of games, and no one appreciates it so much as one who takes it with considerable thought and learns to play it as it should be, and can be played by the merest tyro when properly understood. By witnessing first-class players and exhibit but witnessing first-class players and exhibitions is not enough. It is splendid in showing what can be done, but the reasons for certain shots must be explained for the observer for the observer and student to understand the many situations that arise and how to create and execute them. There is not one spectator in a hundred who has any conception of what the player is attempting to execute. Hence, instructions by the leaders, as well as exhibitions, are necessary. The object of this is to get lovers of the game to comprehend the finer and more technical points. When by doing so, they will not only increase their enjoyment, but improve their game greatly. As the future outlook has a tendency towards the observance of the above suggestions, I am naturally optimistic for all believe indifference means stagnation. Now, point there is that he is stressing the education of the youngsters coming up into the game. He is stressing the education of the spectators and the fans of the game. 
they don't understand the details. They think it looks easy. And he has a good point, you know. Billiards needs to be out in the public. People need to see it, and they need to understand it. It will gain popularity if that's done. Um, we've taken some many strides over the last couple of years uh, bringing more juniors into the game. But the thing that's missing, I think, is the education of the of the fans and the and the spectators that don't know any more about the game. So Mr. Daly had a really good point. Again, 100 years ago, it's uh, ironic that uh, they were dealing with the exact sort of the same issues that we are now with growing the game. That was his primary concern. So uh, if you ever had it in your head that these guys back in the day didn't know what they were talking about, think again. <laughs> they were very much on top of it. And uh, they were very much concerned about their industry. So uh, anyway, that's your little history tidbit for the day. Stick around and we'll hear from Stefan and Jeremy Jones right after this. Hey everybody, it's Allison Fisher here on American Billiard Radio on Pool on the Grind. And I am coming to you from Rack's Pool Room in West Hempstead, New York, where the Predator Pro-Am Tours season finale is taking place and the final match for the amateur nine ball division has just finished and joining me here is the winner Stephen Dempsey who has been here in New York for the last year and playing on the tour and this is now his fourth win for the season so tell me Stephen how you're feeling now after the tournament ending yeah very very happy to win obviously um, I think it was a pretty good final I got off to a bit of a slow start earlier in the tour- today in the tournament where I, I lost the match earlier, but uh, and struggling my next match as well. But uh, I think maybe the last, the final, and maybe the previous match before that, I started playing well, so I was happy, happy to win, obviously. What and you know, you're ranked the highest level handicap for the amateur division as an A plus plus. Tell me what that's like for you. Um, yeah, sometimes I mean it's hard uh, because. You're giving guys like uh, two or three friends when you know there's n- they're not that much less better player than you. Like so, it's hard, especially if you get off to a bad start against them. They can it's really tough to get back into the match. So I think a good start is really important. I, I prefer to play like the same handicap players because you know it's fresh start, even race. So um, I feel more comfortable playing that. Did you find that this event in particular, there was added pressure with a, a big payout here, and you had, um, yeah. you know, a nice, nice prize here, thirty-five hundred. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's great to, to have prize money like that for amateur level uh, nine ball. Um, definitely added pressure as well. I felt because you know bigger stakes, so obviously it's bigger pressure. But um, I think that's when I find myself playing better as well. The more pressure, you know, I prefer that as well. So you concentrate more on every shot. So um, yeah, I was just happy to get the win. And joining us also here is the Predator Pro-Am Tour founder, Tony Robles. How are you feeling about this finale event here at Rax and Steven's performance and having him here on the tour uh, throughout the season? Well, I have to say that it's, it's been a pleasure and an honor, uh, you know, meeting and knowing Steve and getting to know him a little better. He actually plays on a Tuesday night team out of Steinway, so I, I got a chance to speak to him other than just on the tour, and I got to know him and Brendan, his friend, you know, a little better, and uh, he, what a fantastic player he is. We're, we're very happy to have, him, um, to have him here. We're sad that he's leaving back to Ireland, but I'm pretty sure at some point he'll be back. And uh, 
he, he's had a, an incredible year. He's played in eight events and, and won four out of the eight events. And he was obviously promoted uh, to an open speed now, level speed. But uh, it, it was a pleasure watching him perform the way he did. You can tell that, uh, I can tell you've had a snooker background. And uh, you're, you're a shot maker, you play position well. You, you, have, you have the entire package. You have the entire package, very consistent player. And so, just on a brief aside, Tony, you have some changes coming to the tour next season for 2016. You want to talk a little bit about what we're going to have uh, coming up for that season? Uh, what we're going to do next season is we're going to cut back on the open pros, have less open pros. So we're probably, we're, we're for sure going to, going to have eight open pro events, but most of the events are going to be A, B, C, D events. And in, we're going to add a full thousand to each event instead of the normal 500. And top of that, uh, on Sundays, we're going to have a second chance event for players that got knocked out the first day with a $20 entry fee. And it's a 100% payout, single elimination handicap. Great. Well, I think definitely it's a, it's a good move for the tour. And I, I've noticed that sometimes the turnout really just is better for amateur level players and it makes uh makes good sense then you can have particular events that will cater more to the the open players when scheduling is ideal which is why i implore anyone or any one that that has a pool room that they play out of to make sure that if the owner is willing to put up money for an open pro event that you try your best to get all the players around that area to show up because that's unfortunately what happened here. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're adding 500 to an event where only five to eight players are showing up, at some point in time, the owners are, are become reluctant to, to add that money when sure. they feel they can add that to the amateur event and end up with more players right. as well. Right. So that, that's one of the major reasons why we made that change. Sure, makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks a lot, Tony. And we'll go back to Stephen here briefly. Uh, tell us a little bit about your career leading up to coming to New York? Um, yeah, so my background obviously is English pool. I um, played um, a lot of pool since maybe I was 13, 14 years of age. I've been playing on the Irish circuit. Played over in England a couple of times at different uh, international events. And uh, yeah, I made the switch to nine ball this year. Just I took it up as a hobby more than anything when I moved to New York. Um, you know, there's not really as much nine ball back in Ireland. It's more English pool and as Tony said, snooker. So um, that's probably what I will end up playing now when I return. That's probably what I'm going to play. And then, you know, maybe play a bit of nine ball as much as I can before I come back over here for a couple of tournaments here and again. So, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for being here with us. And it's been really great to see you play on the tour this year. We wish you all the best of luck going forward. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. And thank you to Tony and Stephen for joining me. I'm Allison Fisher signing off here on Pool in the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm talking with uh, Mr. Jeremy Jones. He's uh, an accomplished player in his own right. And, uh, well, first of all, how are you doing, Jeremy? Uh, very good, David. Thank you. Uh, how you been? Uh, not too bad. You know, we're moving into the the winter season now, so we all have to <laughs> we all have to suffer. So, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but a lot of pool though. Usually during the winter. Yeah, so. yeah, you're right. It is pool season is 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 uh, in full force right now. Speaking of, uh, I understand that you just uh, snapped one off at the uh, Space City uh, tournament down there in Houston. How was that? Oh, uh, it was great. Um, really, not after I haven't played in about six weeks because uh, I sustained an injury to my hand, and it was good. It was kind of the first decent sized tournament I came back to play in, and there were a lot of good players, and uh, it was fun to win. It was fun. Also, bank pool was like the perfect game to probably come back after laying off. Yeah, uh, playing because you know you gotta let your stroke out to play banks. So yeah, it, it worked out. It was a long weekend, but uh, but it was a fun one. Cool. Yeah. Well, it, it's unfortunate for me because I used to live down there, right outside of Houston. So I would been happy to to go and at least show up, uh, much less try to compete. But uh, now it's a little bit of a commute, so I don't get to get down there quite as much as I used to. But um, yeah, and Kim, uh, Kim Newsom and John, they run a great tournament. Uh, they 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 run a couple hundred players through that tournament with the ladies and all the all the different divisions. And it's amazing they get it done how they do. Yeah, so. yeah. I've heard a lot of good things about it. And uh, this is only what is the third year? Is that right? Uh, I think this was. I thought this was number four. My, okay, you, four. You might be right. Yeah, you might be right about that. I'm pretty sure. Okay, well that's good. That's good. We've got you know some some good quality events out there still happening. You know, it's everybody talks about and uh, lack of this and that, but uh, this is a good example of a good solid tournament. So uh, we need stuff like that going on. That's great. So, yeah, yeah. The main thing with all the events, and not to get off on it too much, but the main thing with any event is just trying to improve from year to year. And, yeah, uh, sure. You see that with tournaments like the Space City and and just several events around uh, tournaments around the country do. But some of them kind of like get a little stagnant sometimes. They're a little yeah. you know, in place. So, but sure. anyway. <laughs> no, that's cool. Plus, I like the variety uh, the var- variety of games that they include. You know, it's not just a straight straight up nine ball or not just straight up eight ball or something. They they do a lot of different stuff. So uh, that's good. It's a good event. Yeah, it makes it easy to, for your tournament to grow. You yeah, know? yeah, so absolutely. People, people time out of their calendar for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Attract as many players as possible too. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, we will move on. Uh, ran into you out there in Vegas at the Moscone Cup, so I know you were there for the whole thing. What do you? Wh- how do you feel about uh, the event this year? Well, just first off, as far as uh, the event itself and the, and the people behind the scenes, it seems like to me the production's just gotten better and better. Uh, I watch from the stands mainly, but I caught it on the monitors here and there, and it, it's it seemed like a really good show. It was unfortunate, again, the Americans got beat. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. So. Sure, sure. Now, you've been on that team uh, half dozen times, six, seven times now. Um, I, I don't want to – let's see. What do I want to ask here? How do you – how do you think the players felt about the situation um, – well, let me rephrase that. Um, hmm. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to win? Well, you know, if, if you look at it overall, it's a, you know, everybody, whether it was an experienced pool player in the stands or a novice or just someone that's just there with somebody that doesn't even play pool, you could tell the nerves. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and then as far as for this year, uh, you know, the nerves overall are always going to be there every event. But as far as this year, <laughs> you know, the first couple of days, the Americans got the got the bad end of the rolls overall. Um, the one thing I did see, I think, in the first couple of days is the clock. It seemed the Europeans as a whole were more comfortable with the clock, uh, and mm-hmm. that came with some maybe some decision making. But just overall, their just comfort level looked a lot lot higher with the clock, and uh, yeah. I think both both teams had trouble with the table at times. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, you know, to speak about the American team, they showed a lot of heart. A lot of people don't realize how hard it is to play from behind and, and keep your composure. And, and they not only did that, they got better every day right. with it. Right. Um, and, you know, I lost a lot of Hill Hill matches. So, yeah, you know, you know, the winner, it's easy to speak for the winner, but uh, and the, and the team that lost this year was Americans. But, I mean, they should they should hang their head high. I mean, they, they played well. And, and uh, you know, a few things here or there, they could have won. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were on the team, you guys were obviously winning more than losing at that point. What uh, right. do you feel like now? Th- this is, I guess, kind of an opinion question. Do you feel like the the people talk a lot about the team aspect of it? Do you feel like back when you were playing on it, that 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 quote unquote team aspect was there, or do you think it just really didn't matter so much back then? Like, what's what what's so different now? Well, um, you know. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, you know, on every team you're going to have, especially when you're talking about the greatest at whatever they're doing, you're going to have maybe some egos or sure. maybe a, a few that get along really well. That not saying they don't get along with the other, but they don't know them quite as well. So that that's a little, makes things a little different. The only thing these guys got to realize is, and every, you know, it doesn't matter whoever gets picked is, is they're professionals, and and as far as professionals. It's pretty easy for those four days to just just play your best, and I think that those guys did that overall. Yeah. Um, I'm just talking about as far as looking back at other teams. Mm-hmm. You know, I played on many teams with Earl Strickland. I love Earl to death, but you know, like it, you know, it's not going to be easy. You know what I'm saying? And not saying it's not worth it being hard, but you know, playing with Earl sometimes can be oh yeah can be tough, and he yeah. and he'd tell you that himself. You know, yeah. and he's told me that. I mean, we played many doubles together, but you just got to ignore those type of things and just play. Right. You know, that's, that's the main thing. It's, it's like, uh, and not to take anything away from the Europeans, they played they played well this year overall. I mean, they, they deserved the win. Um, but I, I'm not sure that overall the play aspect from the Europeans was any better than the from the European teams I faced. Right. Whenever I played. And, and maybe the names are different. You know, but as far as what I'm what I'm getting at is it's a race to five. Yeah, and uh, it's all about just concentration, focus, and, and and trying to make yourself as comfortable as possible. There's a bunch of teams you could assemble to beat a bunch of different teams from Europe. Yeah, I think anyway. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I think <laughs> I think so. Yeah, well, no, I understand that. Do you think that? Uh, well, you mentioned since I'm talking about the team aspect. Um, do you feel like you know what if you what if we threw Earl on the team today? Do you now that's I know it's a crazy idea, but do you think that uh, and the so-called average professional should be able to work th- around somebody on the team with an attitude or somebody that 
goes off the handle or somebody you know gets a little more frustrated than others is that does that have such a huge effect that we are afraid really that it's going to affect the team overall or is it something that people should just kind of get over yeah okay he's a pissant well, whatever you know I, I shoot my best anyway how much of an effect yeah. can that have on you well it's kind of like in my point of view that's the type of thing you talk more about when you're winning than when you're losing when you're losing <laughs> you shouldn't talk about much at all you should just talk about winning <laughs> you know, yeah that's that's my point of view, you know, like a lot of times it's really, did, did anything really affect our team outside of the table to, for us to get beat this year? It's a good question. Okay. But I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. No. Um, you know what I mean? I, I, I wasn't in the team room all the time. I went back there a couple of times and talked to the guys and yeah. talked to Mark and I didn't see anything there. Right. So, you know, so I don't, I, I think you could discard those things. I think if I'm a European fan, that's exactly what I'd like to be hearing. Yeah, exactly. On the American side. Absolutely. There's, there's some, some reason why this didn't happen or that didn't happen. Right, you know? right. So, well, and I mean, that's... I, I, yeah. No, I agree with you. It's, it's it, I don't think it would be... I don't think it'd be a good idea to blame it on somebody else. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what the, the reason was. Uh, I don't think you can expect anybody to be um in the perfect mood all day every day i don't think that you know you can expect out of five people that everybody's going to have the ideal attitude or the ideal approach to it so it's just one of those things you know people are people uh and if you're playing in that game and that tournament at that level personally i feel like that's something that you should be uh, it should be uh you know out of your head it should not be a concern basically like you said, if it's not on the table, why are you worried about it? <coughs> right. Excuse me. Right. And it's, go ahead. Go ahead, David. No, that's all right. I was just coughing. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, well, I was going to say, you know, I played a lot of team sports through the years. And, well, when I was young, for, for the most part. But a lot of pool team sports also. And generally on the team, you know, whether it's five, six guys, whatever it is, you'll have a couple guys that – are clear enough to where they can still do their thing and actually try and get the best out of the types that that not are going to cause problems, but are a little can cause a little uh, less focus. Sure, you know, does that make any sense to you? Well, the distractions. You know I mean? yes. Whether it be the captain, you know, the captain has to do that with everyone. He has to please everyone. Yeah, you know, at, at some point or to some extent. But there's usually a player or two that'll go out of his way to make things a little easier in the practice room or whatnot, yeah. too, you know? Sure, so, yeah. That's why it's called a team, kind of. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah. Uh, there, yeah, there's no I in team, as they say, but uh, it... <laughs> yeah. Well, here's another question, uh, and, and this is obviously a, sort of an opinion question because nobody's really going to know the answer but the person that I'm asking it about. What is it that makes... Like say, uh, I'm just gonna throw his name out there, a Shane Van Boning, somebody who who can beat. <laughs> he's a world beater again and again. But then you go to this this simple f- five man gig, and all of a sudden he just falls apart. Wh- why? What? Uh, in your in your opinion, how can something like that happen? Is it is nerves really really gonna have that big of an effect on you? Physically or is it mentally? 
Well, the, it's, well, it starts out mentally, and then that leads to you lose your physical. That's usually how it happens. But, right. um, you know, he has pressures on him that he doesn't really obviously feel whenever he's just playing a regular tournament. And that's, that's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, you want him to have the pressure. That's what's going to make him over. That's what's going to end up making him probably end up playing, maybe being the greatest Moscone Cup player ever. You know, be honest with you, because yeah. you, you can see when he starts to get comfortable how great he can be out there. Absolutely, even in the Moscone. So, yeah, I don't. That's one guy. I don't know. I, I mean, I, of course, you want better results because he's your A number one. But that's one guy I probably wouldn't worry too much about as far as. Well, he'll be fine. I so. yeah. Well, I agree. I agree. In, in theory, we shouldn't worry about it. Um, and in theory, he shouldn't worry about it, it either. But there's something about that. I don't know. And here's, I guess, the question. If I was talking to Shane right now, I would ask him, and I don't know if he would... Now, this is sort of an intimidating question. So I can understand why somebody would avoid it or try to skirt the issue as hard as they could. But my question is this. Is it literally the event, the format, the lights and the camera and the crowd? Is that what does it to him? Or is he actually... Is there certain Europeans on that team? that get to him. You know what I mean? And I know I'm not expecting you to answer this, but I see it as one of two things. You know, there's either something about that venue and that format that bugs him, or there's somebody on that team that scares the hell out of him. One of the two. Something's causing well, him to get nervous. Yeah, and I think there's a few There's a few other factors that could be psychological as far as, and this happens with some other players too, but with him it's a little different. Um, his break is taken away, and and his break isn't a gimmick break. His break is like a machine break, so it's kind of taken away. So that's that's a little, you know, false sense of security a little bit. Like true, true. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys I played a lot of tournaments with the last eight months. We go to these tournaments, and it's, it's never really a break shot. It's always some type of well, they know how to make this ball, or they know how to make that ball. Right. Uh, and I'm not talking about Shane, but I'm saying like once you lose that cracking that nine on the spot you can lose a little security that uh -hmm. it kind of knocks the wind out of you a little bit if you're a a player that's used to break and run out a lot right 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 well you know and has to be frustrating at the very least you know yeah and it could be as simple as he wants it so bad you know it gets him a little bit out of kilter so that's true i mean it doesn't uh, i don't think he sees the cameras i was i've talked to a lot of people about this i've never even from day one i haven't been on near as much tv as he has but I've never really seen the cameras, I think. Yeah, yeah. So maybe so. it's not necessarily the, the, the televised portion of it, but, uh, you know. No, no I, don't, I don't think it's that. You know, maybe no. maybe all the people, you know, there's a lot of energy in that room, so. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And, well, and here's the flip side of that coin. You know, you got Justin and, and Skyler, Skyler specifically, shows up for the first time, and, uh Hell, the guy looked like he was playing in his own garage. You know what I mean? He didn't. He didn't. It, it, there was just a little glimmer every every so often. He'd get that sort of a nervous look in his face. But other than that, he looked very comfortable, and it showed that he was very comfortable because he played very relaxed, very um, intentional. There was uh, very few times that he. It didn't seem like he knew what shot to take. You know, he was right on the money. <coughs> really. Yeah, he, he played well. I mean, a few times on the rollouts and different things and kicking at the balls, you could tell he wasn't quite used to that table. Uh, yeah. He gave it, if you look as a whole, that's one thing. I I didn't keep up with it, like marking it, but I could tell you 
if you went back and looked at giving a ball in hand USA against uh, Europe, it's uh, I, I bet it's a pretty big margin. Yeah, and um, so you know, but as far as missing balls, I don't think I think Skyler probably missed the least amount of balls. Probably, I think I don't, uh, I'm not 100 percent on that. Right, but. right. No, I know what you mean. That was the impression that we got because he just kept doing well. You know what I mean? There was I, no, yeah, but. I've told many people that USA's got a bright future. You know, I, I hope uh, there's more more of them to come along. But there's there's definitely a bunch of young guys that are mm-hmm. already good, really good players. Right, right. Well, so uh, I don't want to I don't want to uh, beat the dead horse to death, as they say. So we'll uh, let that Moscone Cup thing just kind of fizzle. Uh, I think it's it's been discussed just over and over again and everybody's got their opinions on what happened and why and all that kind of good stuff so well yeah most thing i want to say is, is, is i was i was pretty proud of americans and uh yeah very proud of americans and just a few things here or there could have went their way uh, uh things would have been different so that's true that's true and that's all and that's always going to be the case really in that in that short format it's always going to come yeah. come down to one or two little things but that, but that can cost you the whole max. So it that you know that's that's sort of the beauty of it, though. You know, it's a high pressure uh, situation. It's very intense, uh, short bursts of concentration and, and and good play, and it really separates, you know, it the the wheat from the chaff, as they say. <laughs> It'll separate the men from the boys in that situation. Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. There is. Uh, the uh, shoot. What was I just going to tell you? Um, well, anyway, I did want to go back to one thing about Skyler, and that is one thing you touched on was the up and coming players. Um, how do you feel about uh, the the known and unknown crop of youngsters coming up, and how important is that to this game? Well, it's very important. It's, it's. Uh, I, I think, I think it could probably, you know, be a lot more of them always. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very important to have places for them to play that uh, that that aren't, you know, the type of places that you wouldn't want your kids to go to. You know what I mean? And not yeah. saying that they're bad places, but liquor and smoke and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, no, I um, understand that. Yeah. I'd like to see it get in a lot more high schools. I know that. Um, I know there's some around the country that, that that have it, but overall, it needs to be a little bit more in the schools. I think to to really get the boom, it could it could uh, it could have. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But well, you know, but you know, they see guys like Skyler. It's going to be a lot of small towns, probably uh, like where Skyler's from, and it's pretty good and too too small. But you know, places like that that are that, they really see pool is okay, you know. Yeah, not not a bad place to to be. Well, and that was uh, what I was going to get at is that uh, now there is a new Moscone Cup format Challenge Cup, the Atlantic Challenge Cup is the name of it for the juniors, and it's an international, you know, across the just like Moscone Cup, except for the juniors. Now, I know it's going to take a little time for that event to gain a little traction, um, but the beauty of this is that they've got this something that's accessible to the juniors, something that's respectable. It's a title worth having. 
you know, this is not uh, Joe's Bar and Grill tournament on the weekend. It's a very serious thing that these kids are doing now. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, in the next year or two, we will see some of these juniors go through that system. And hopefully we'll have, like you said, a whole nother crop coming up. And maybe that yeah. will be reflected, you know, in a couple of years down the line once these when the juniors have done it and been on that stage and been in front of the cameras, in front of the crowds and stuff, when they show up at the Moscone Cup, it's gonna be like riding a bike. And this is something that has never happened before in the history of billiards, the, these juniors having this serious of competition. I think that the Americans will benefit tremendously from having this uh, breeding ground, as it were, for you know future performers. So um, just a message to you and a message to the listeners out there. Um, you know, oh, that's great. We need yeah, that. they can uh, tag the USA with those those kids. That's, that's great. what I mean. We need this, and so every opportunity that you get to support some of this junior activities, the junior nationals and the Atlantic Challenge Cup, by all means, you know, support them. If not anything else, just cheer them on, because you know, in a couple of years, these are going to be the guys that we're looking at for the Moscone team for sure. Oh yeah, all the all the young people have to do is be around good players, and they learn so fast. I mean, it right. uh, doesn't That's take long. Very true. And you know, I I I'm pretty optimistic about this. We've got just a couple of years ago, there were hardly any junior uh, events of of that were of note, noteworthy at all. And thank goodness for people like Sam Deep with the Billiard Education Foundation. She's kicked up that that number quite significantly in the last 365 days i think we have now about 40 40 different qualifiers for the junior nationals 40 40 of them now i mean not to be mr profound here but even if only if that only produced one good player per qualifier that's still 40 more juniors going into the nationals than we had before so, oh, absolutely. So these are great, yeah. I mean, you're going to win the numbers. Yeah. Well, these are great strides, and like I said, th- this is the training ground and the breeding ground for our future Moscone team. So, let's just you know keep our positivity about us and everything. I know that you got uh, to go play some one pocket, so I'll get I'll let you get off the phone, Jeremy. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, no problem, Dave. I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, just call me whenever you need. All right, sir. Good luck with your matches, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Have a good night. All right. Thank you very much. You too. All right. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to American Billiard Radio, and we are going to try out a little something new, have a little fun with it, Thought it would be a cool idea to share um, some historic stories with you in the format of a book. So we are going to actually kick off this book this week. We'll be doing a chapter every week. And uh, we've decided to start with a somewhat rare book about a player that you might have heard of. His name uh, on the street was Andrew Ponzi. Uh, his actual name was Andrew D'Alessandro. He uh, came out of South Philly, and um, he was the a, a three times world pocket billiard champion. 
And uh, the book here uh, is an autobiography about Mr. Ponzi. Somewhat rare book, actually. There's not a lot of copies of it floating around. So we thought this might be a good book to start with because it's not something that everybody has in their collection. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what we'll do is we'll cover a chapter every week and uh, work all our way through the whole book. And uh, if it's received well, then maybe we'll move on to some of the other uh, historic books out there. So, uh, hey, why not? You know, we'll have a little fun with it. So why don't we go ahead and get started? The name of the book is The Fabulous, the Fabulous Mr. Ponzi, the autobiography of Andrew Ponzi, three times world pocket billiard champion. It is written by Andrew Ponzi and Sam Edwards Levy. It was published by Alpina Publishing Company in 1948. So, without further ado, we'll go ahead and kick off the first chapter. Da, 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 da. We were seated in Lindy's Broadway restaurant, shooting the breeze and talking shop one midnight. Included in our little group were Willie Hoppy, perennial billiard champion, Sam Levy, my former booking manager, a couple of friends, and yours truly, Andrew Ponzi. Hoppy and I were relating incidents that had befallen us when we toured America as a playing team. I had just recited the story of how some speculatively inclined Chicago gentleman had gone home in a barrel after backing Alan Hall, Chicago three-cushion wizard, against me in a series, a series of games. They probably reasoned, Oh, this Ponzi guy is just a pool player. What chances he got against Hall in a three-cushion three billiard match? Little did they know or reckon that under Hoppy's tutelage, I had become an expert at the angle game and had often given Willie some hot battles during our exhibition tour. They were soon to learn this fact, to their sorrow, and to the eventual depletion of their respective bankrolls. When I had finished my tale, one of the group laughly, laughingly observed, Gee, Ponzi, you ought to write a book. This chance remark was the awakening of an idea that had lain dormant in my mind for a long time. I turned to Levy and said, Don't you think it would be a good idea to tell the fans of my many experiences I've encountered during my 25 years as a professional billiard player? If you'll collaborate with me, I'll give all the technical details while you furnish the incidental music. <laughs> Levy studied for a moment while he blew a cloud and uh, smoke into the air. He's a tall, gaunt figure who spent many years on the vaudeville stage before embark embarking upon a career as booking manager for many famous bowling and billiard celebrities. During his year years on the stage, a newspaper writer once described him as a long drink of water, which may be an adequate description of his lean, angular frame. Andy, he said, the knowledge and experience you have gained in your career should prove of inestimable aid to any fan seeking to improve his or her game. The fans would also like to, more know, to know more about the romance, the thrills, the agony of failure that go into, make, into the making of a champion. There are thousands of new and old devotees of the game who would be interested in learning 
just how you got started in the fascinating game of billiards and what difficulties you had to overcome before you reached the top. I nodded in approval. It sounded like a very good suggestion, and I was about to tell Sam that I agreed, but on second thought, I held my tongue and decided to hear him through. You see, Levy is a good talker, and I'm a good listener. This is probably the secret of our, of our ideal companionship. Here's another thing, said Levy. I've read a few books on the subject, and I've noticed that most all billiard stories start the player's career while he is at the zenith, the zenith of his frame, fame. They give, they give one the impression that, like Topsy, they just grew up. In all too many cases, they neglect to tell how and where the player learned to handle a cue. I'm sure the public would be interested in learning all these facts, and if you combine them with your technical knowledge of the game, such a story would serve a useful purpose and make for interesting reading. This suggestion sounded plausible because these very same questions had been put to me in the various billiard halls and clubs, veteran hospitals and military camps, where I gave exhibitions and instructions for the last six years under the auspices of the Billiard Association of America, the governing body of billiards. I'm going to try to answer many of the queries put to me by interested fans, and in doing so, I don't intend to pull any punches or sugarcoat any of the facts which contributed to my success or failure as an amateur or professional player. I talked my first cue in a little neighborhood billiard parlor located in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There's nothing startling or unusual in this fact. Hoppy, Schaefer, Karras, and Moscone all started in the same way. Where else was I to learn the game? My family were not endowed with worldly goods that would have permitted me a table in my own game room. How many, young, how many youngsters can afford to join a club where they may play the game in an atmosphere of refinement and luxury? So I went for my recreation and pastime to the little so I went for my recreation and pastime to the little corner billiard hall, which also served as headquarters for all the other lads who lived in my vicinity. This was our clubhouse our meeting place, where we could spend an hour or two in a friendly game or sing the praises of our individual baseball heroes. To our way of thinking, it was just as dignified and harmless as hanging out at the, at the corner drugstore. We were just a bunch of average boys who grew up into citizens. If one wishes to compare the conduct of present-day teenagers with that of the boys who frequented the billiard halls 25 years ago, please remember that we did not have a juvenile delinquency problem in those days. I can recall, years ago, seeing a great champion pugilist at the old Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. During the course of his monologue, he said, there are more bank employees in prison than there are pugilists. I'm sure this statement would also apply to professional pool players, notwithstanding the fact that their early environment was spent in and around a billiard room. I have always felt that if a young man has character and a sense of decency, no sport, whether it be boxing, baseball, or billiards, would have any tendency to impair his morals. For example, take the life of William F. Hoppy, one of the greatest players of all times. Willie frequented, frequented public billiard halls and played in them since he wore knee breeches. 
Yet his conduct in public and private life is a shining example of clean living and fine sportsmanship. He neither drinks nor smokes, and I cannot recall ever hearing him ever utter one word of profanity in all the years I've known him. He is welcomed into the most exclusive clubs in America. A list of his legion of friends would read like a page of the American Who's Who. Irving Crane, 1946 title holder, is a family man. He's a clean-cut American boy brought up in Livonia, New York, a small farm community. The big cities and bright lights never spoiled Irving. His father, who was one of the best-known attorneys in the city of Rochester, New York, never voiced any objections when Irving decided to follow the career of a professional billiards player. Jimmy Karras and Willie Moscone are both happily married and have families. They spend their most joyous hours with their wives and kitties at home. As for myself, my wife and I have been married for 14 years and we have two beautiful daughters. Many thousands of the billiard fraternity throughout America know me only as Andrew Ponzi, but I was born and christened Andrew D'Alessandro. How I acquired the name Ponzi is quite a story in itself. It will be told in detail later on. My folk had migrated from Italy and had settled in South Philadelphia, where I was born. At this time, there were four small D'Alessandros. They consisted of brothers Nick, Felix, Sister Teresa, and myself. We were a very happy little group until I was four years of age. Then tragedy suddenly struck our little home and changed the whole pattern of our lives. Our dad passed away. Soon we were in very reduced circumstances due to the loss of the family's sole breadwinner. Mother was compelled to put her children in various homes. I was sent to St. John's Orphan Asylum. A few generous friends and relatives financed mother with a little greens and grocery business of her own. With indomitable courage, she set about to mend the family fortunes and to provide a home for herself and her children. Although surrounded by kind sisters at St. John's, my childhood was marked by a great loneliness. I missed my dear mother terribly, and I longed for the playful companionship of brothers Nick and Felix and sister Teresa. On the days that mother found time to leave her little business and visit me, I was the happiest boy in the world, and her promise that we would soon be together in our own little home filled me with great gladness. One day she came and, taking me in her arms, said, Andrew, the good sisters tell me that you have something wrong with your eyes. The doctors are going to cure you so that you will be able to see everything clear and bright. Please be a good, brave boy and do everything the sisters and doctors tell you to do. I was a little too young to gather the full impact of her word, but it seems that Sister Frances Joseph had noticed cataracts forming and physicians had ordered an operation lest I go blind. Whenever I think of those days, a great wave of thankfulness fills my heart and billows out towards the unknown doctors who gave me back my precious sight. Without their care and skill, I would never have known the keen eyesight which I now enjoy and which is the essence of good shot maker in the game of billiards. For weeks I groped in total blackness. Then, one wonderful day, the bandages were removed from my eyes. In a darkened room I saw the doctor and Sister Frances Joseph standing before me. It was good to see their smile of encouragement as they realized the operation had been a complete success. 
As for me, it was a blessed relief to know that I could run and play in the grass again, that I would see the beautiful sky, the moonbeams that played on the walls of the orphanage at night, and best of all, the happy face of my little mother. I was 12 years of age before mother's long struggle had come to an end, and I left St. John's. Mother's little business had prospered, and she provided a modest little home where we were all reunited once again. Brothers Nick and Felix secured positions as office boys. Sister Teresa was apprenticed to a beauty culture salon, and manfully I decided to do my part and join the great army of Western Union messenger boys. For four years, I ran errands and delivered telegrams. One fateful day, while on an errand for the company, I was struck by an auto and received a fractured wrist, besides many bruises. For weeks, I was unemployed while waiting for the break in my wrist to mend. And with nothing to do to while away the long hours, it was only natural that I should gravitate to the gym billiard parlor to seek the companionship of other neighborhood boys and look over the box scores which were posted on the wall. The gym was owned by a very kindly man named Mr. Romeo. He was like a big brother and advisor to all the boys in the neighborhood. He would, per he would permit no rowdyism or profanity in his room, and if he thought a boy was a bad influence to the rest of us, he would politely tell him to stay out of the place. Because a denial of admittance would have been a near tragedy to most of us. You can rest assured we were always on our good behavior, especially in the presence of Mr. Romeo. <coughs> Excuse me. On Sundays, we would see him and his family as they came from church, and the folk of our neighborhood would tip their hats and show him deep respect as he passed. It seemed as if everyone brought his troubles to Mr. Romeo. He was always the first to contribute to a worthy cause or to help a family in distress. I have met many room operators during my tours around the country during the last 18 years, and I must admit that by far the great majority are upstanding citizens who try to run clean amusement resorts where one may relax and play in a club-like atmosphere. Of course, there are always a few exceptions to the rule. Like, as the old uh, saying has it, you will always find one or two bad apples in the barrel, but they are in the tiniest minority. Sometimes Mr. Romeo would leave his business on an errand, and in return for minding his place, he permitted me to practice any time the tables were not in use. With my wrists and splints, it was very difficult for me to handle acoustic in the orthodox manner, but somehow I managed to grasp one lightly with my fingers and pocket a few balls. Although I seemed to be a natural shot maker after a few weeks' practice, I realized that I knew absolutely nothing of the basic principles of billiards, such as stance at the table, cueing the ball properly, and position play. Mr. Romeo obtained some books and pamphlets for me on these subjects, and I spent many hours of practice at the table while, di while digesting and mastering the instructions given. The more I played, the more fascinating the game became, and sometimes I was surprised at my own rate of progress. One day, Mr. Romeo sat watching me practice a very difficult draw shot. Trying as it was, I never gave up, gave up until I had mastered that particular stroke. And when I turned to Mr. Romeo with a satisfied smile of triumph on my face, he said, You like this game, don't you, Andy? I sure do, Mr. Romeo. 
I won't be satisfied until I win your house tournament. There are three things that will make you a great player, he said. They are practice, practice, and more practice. That concludes chapter one for this week. So please join us next week where we will start with chapter two of the fabulous, fabulous Mr. Ponzi. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.